This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In studio with us is Ashley Garley, also from Sands & Associates. Um, Ashley's an estate manager, wide range of insolvency administration experience. Uh, When meeting with clients for the first time at Sands, uh, she says her goal is to ensure that each person comes away feeling confident, empowered, and knowing much more about how to deal with their financial difficulties than when they first arrived. And Ashley, I can't tell you how much that sounds like everything that Blair and I always talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, on how to greet people and sort of move them through this sometimes pretty difficult process. So I'm so glad that you could be here today. Yeah, me too. Great. So we're this uh, this segment is uh, client myths and misconceptions. Yeah. So I was chatting with Ashley about coming on the show, and there were two purposes. You know, one is I want our listeners to really understand a little bit more about who would they actually meet with if they were to come into Sands and Associates. And Ashley works primarily out of the Vancouver office, but she also travels and serves our Kelowna office occasionally and, and other spots as well. Um, so that's part of it. But also, I wanted Ashley to really tell us, you know, when people come in the door, they often have a lot of myths and misconceptions, and sometimes they're a bit different than what I might have thought were the main myths. Sure. So I wanted Ashley to just say to the clients you've met with, say, over the last year or two years or so what are the main myths and misconceptions they bring in the door? And then let's give, you know, the factual basis as well. And we'll have a good chat today. Sounds good. Excellent. So what's, uh, and, and these aren't really in the order of importance or the, or how many times they show up. They're just numbered in this way. Or is this the number one that you're going to lose everything when you file for bankruptcy? This is probably one of the number one myths. Most people think they're going to lose everything. I so, would think so, too. Now that I said yeah. it out loud, it would so, be my concern so, as well. So myth number one, Ashley, you lose all your assets when you file for bankruptcy. Yeah, many people have this uh, conception that this is going to happen when you file bankruptcy. And before I got into this field, I had a similar idea that if you file bankruptcy, you will lose all of your assets. Um, and that is not the case. So within Canada, uh, there is a set of exemption allowances. And the idea behind these exemption allowances is that everybody is entitled to a certain base level of assets in all circumstances, regardless of their financial hardship and or a bankruptcy. So to me, that almost feels like everyone's allowed to have some dignity, right? You That's know, there's right. a certain base level of things that no matter what, not everything can be taken from you. And this was brand new information for me, as it is, I know, for everyone, uh, unless you're familiar with how the process works. But I always thought if you were going into bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy, everything went. Didn't matter what you had. Yeah, and many people think this. And, you know, briefly, some assets that are exempt and you are allowed to keep are, for instance, your household furniture. So, no, you're not going to lose everything in your home. You know, clothing and medical aids up to an unlimited amount. So many people have this idea, you know, I'm going to lose all the clothing off my back. That's not the case either. Other assets that you can keep that many people also are not aware of are, you know, your RRSPs are protected Mm -hmm. unless you've made contributions within the last 12 months. As well as many people think, if I have a home, I'm going to automatically lose that when right. I file bankruptcy. And uh, within the greater Vancouver area and Victoria area, you are automatically allowed to actually keep up to a certain amount of equity in your home. 
up to the value of $12,000 in our greater Vancouver area and up to $9,000 anywhere else in the province. Okay, so could you explain what exactly that means? Uh, what exactly that means? I'm allowed to keep that equity. What does that mean? So, you know, in a home, in your property, you would have an amount of equity with when you have in it. So you have your current market value, less, you know, what your mortgage, et cetera, would be on it, plus selling costs, et cetera. We take a look at what is left over after that. Do you have equity within your home? Okay. So many people think if I have equity within my home, I automatically have to give up my whole home and the equity will go into the bankruptcy estate. Got it. So this is letting you know that, no, you are allowed to have up to $12,000 here in the greater Vancouver area. $9,000 anywhere else in the province. And even if you exceed, you know, these amounts, there are options to deal with that. It's not going to be you automatically lose your home. Okay, good. Uh, what about if you've got a mortgage or a car loan? So this is something that also comes up for people. They feel I'm going to automatically lose that asset as well. And no, as long as you continue to maintain the payments on these uh, loans or leases, you get to uh, maintain that asset. So that could be your home, your vehicle, etc. So you just need to continue maintaining the payments on that and keeping that in good standing. And I would maintain those payments if I was doing a consumer proposal, for example, yeah, right? Yeah, in both cases. So the way that I explain to folks is, you know, basically a secured debt, like a mortgage or a car loan, means that if you don't pay it, they're able to come and take the security back from you, the car or the mortgage, or right. the car or the house. Um, nothing that we do impacts that at all. So if you want to keep the car, you just keep making the payments. If you want to keep living where you are, you keep paying the mortgage. You going into bankruptcy or doing a consumer proposal gives you the option. If you wanted to walk away from those obligations, okay, you could, but not the obligation to do so. Most people are actually in much better shape. They can afford their mortgage better. They can afford their car loan better if we've helped them with a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy to deal with all the other debt. Got it. Okay. So what's number two? Uh, bankruptcy can't eliminate income tax debt. And do you know, I even have accountants call me and they're saying, you know, I've got this guy's got a bunch of, you know, credit card debt. I know you can help with that, but the income taxes, I know you can't help. I'm like, okay, you ask me, you're telling me because I can absolutely <laughs> help with this. So this is a big misconception here. So Ashley, bankruptcy yeah, cannot it. eliminate it. Yeah, yeah, explain that. So just as Blair said, not just amongst the people that we meet in our office, but, you know, amongst other professionals out there. Who should know, right? who you think you should know. But, you know, we do have this idea that it's our tax debt. So how could we ever include this in one of these options? But in fact, you know, a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal proposal is your only available option to eliminate or reduce these government debts, such as CRA tax debt, uh, student loans, if it's been more than seven years since you were a student, MSP, and even ICBC debts can be dealt with through a licensed insolvency trustee. And the only issue is that student loan mm -hmm. piece, right? And if as long as you haven't paid on it, for what's the period of time? Uh, close. So as long as you haven't been a student for haven't? the last seven years. Okay. So paying on it doesn't really impact too much, but it's when you were last a student, the government wants you to try for, you know, at least a few years, try to earn income, pay it back. And if you go bankrupt or do a consumer proposal and it has not been seven years since you were last a student, that debt would survive. That's okay. the only one that, that has that special status. Fair enough. Good. I'm glad you explained that. Mm -hmm. uh, what about the myth that my credit's ruined uh, my credit is ruined if I'm going to file bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. That's right. Many people feel if I file a bankruptcy or even a consumer proposal that there will be no option for them to rebuild their credit or even have credit again. Ever again. Yeah. And that's, again, not the case in a bankruptcy. Uh, it's going to remain on your credit history for six years following your discharge. But 
It's important to note that even though that's reporting on there for six years, within about two to three years from your bankruptcy discharge, you can positively rebuild on there and have a good credit history standing within that time. So even though it's reporting on there for six years, you can still positively be reflecting on that after your bankruptcy discharge. And then after that six years, it's completely eliminated from there. And, the, and then all you'll see is my, is my good credit history. Yeah. Exactly. The way I sometimes discuss with clients is, you know, there's 120,000 people every year in Canada, give or take a few, uh, who file bankruptcy or consumer proposal. If all of those people were just eliminated from the credit system, that's a lot of consumers for the banks to write off every year. They're not writing off 120,000 consumers. People will want to loan you money again, because otherwise, looking at it cynically, nobody makes any money if they don't loan you money in the future. So there will be a period of time where you have to rebuild, but it's closer to the two to three years Ashley was mentioning. Got it. What about tools and resources to build, uh, to rebuild my credit rating or build it? So yeah, that's another great thing that's offered actually through the bankruptcy and consumer proposal process is we do offer uh, two counseling sessions, which do touch base on all these tools and resources that would help you rebuild your credit. A great place to start is by securing yourself with a secured credit card. So you go out there, it's guaranteed approval. You're going to have that credit card and positively be using that, meaning you're paying that bill off every month in full. And that's going to very positively reflect on your credit bureau and show that you're now responsibly using the credit. And it's a small, usually the credit card is a small amount that's put on it. Is that right? Or a... That's right. You put a small deposit down and they're going to give you a limit. It varies on which um, institution you apply to, but it does give you the available credit, which you can then go out and responsibly use. Absolutely. As, and the, responsi- the responsible part is that I need, to pay it off. I need to pay it off on a timely manner that's right. when or, I'm supposed to. Or they'll take your deposit and then you won't get the positive stories on your credit and then uh, it has not achieved what it's supposed to achieve. Right. You don't get the credit <laughs> card right. or yeah. anything. That's a, a, a mess at that point. Um the other, I, I like this myth because this is sort of the one that I fell into uh, before I started uh, doing this show, is that bankruptcy is my only option to deal with debt. Yeah, many people think that it is their only other option out there to get debt relief. But uh, although the consumer proposal is not a new debt relief tool, you know, many people are surprised that it can relieve them from their debt. Um, What the consumer proposal does is it combines all the debts into one settlement and gives the person a, you know, advantage of being able to just keep track of one payment while Mm -hmm. settling all the debts instead of now having multiple creditors to deal with multiple payments. So it makes it very manageable and avoids them going bankrupt. Exactly. And it's always, what's the percentage, Blair, that that you're always able to um, negotiate in terms of paying down when you've got a consumer proposal? Yeah, two really important percentages you know first off is what's what percentage does the person have to offer back and you know Mm -hmm. usually it's about 30 to 50 percent of the debt outstanding so whatever the total amount is forget about future interest that goes to zero and then you repay somewhere in the range 30 to 50 20 to 40 percent something like that so that's a good percentage for people to know it's good ballpark the other percentage i think is so important for people to know is how often are these proposals accepted because some people say well why would my creditors ever agree to give me zero interest give me five years to pay off a reduced amount and the answer is 95 to 99% of the time these proposals get accepted because the alternative is often the creditors will get nothing if you choose to file for a bankruptcy. So if you can offer about a third of the debt back, 
generally about 95 to 99 percent of the time that proposal could get accepted. And in terms of getting everybody on board, all of your lenders on board, mm-hmm. what's the percentage that you need in order for that to, yeah. for a consumer proposal to happen? Oh, great questions, Elaine. The, all we need is 50 percent by dollar value. So if you've got someone yelling and screaming, I'll never accept a proposal unless they've got a majority of your debt, they don't have to. As long as the other guys or gals say yes, it's a binding deal. Yeah, I really like that part mm-hmm. of it as well. Um, the myth number five, was there anything else that you wanted to say about the consumer proposal? No, Blair touched a lot of those Yeah, I know. Very we well. talk, yeah. we talk about, about it all the time, Ashley. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, that they're lengthy and costly. Yeah. So, I mean, Blair did touch a lot of these points that a lot of people think they're going to have this giant repayment back, that this is going to last a long time for them. But as Blair mentioned, you know, you only need to usually repay back 20 to 30% of that debt. Okay. A payment plan that we put out in the proposal could be anywhere from 48 to 60 months. But the great thing about the proposal is that you do have the right to pay that out more or full at any time. So if you start to earn more, you know, in the future and you're starting to have a better financial standing, you do now have the ability to also finish this consumer proposal off quicker for yourself. So it's a bit more flexible. And the last one, and we're just running out of time here, I'm not responsible for my spouse's debt. Yeah, many people think I'm married, my spouse has debt, now this is my responsibility if they can't meet it. And unless your partner uh, has co-signed or, you know, you have personally guaranteed yourself to, you know, be responsible for this debt, if they they cannot make it. Your spouse's debt is not your responsibility. Those are their debts. And so even if your spouse were to go bankrupt, that does not mean that that bankruptcy affects you. That's their legal proceeding to deal with their debt. Exactly. That's great. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us, Sanjeev Petro, who's an associate and senior litigator with Magellan Law in Langley. Practice is pretty broad. Uh, It encompasses a lot of areas like commercial and business litigation, builder's liens, property disputes, estates, trust litigation, variation of trust and insurance matters. Uh, Represents uh, folks small to meet as well as small to medium-sized businesses in all levels of court in British Columbia. We're so happy you could join us, Sanjeev. Well, thanks for having me on. Great. And this segment's all about uh, kind of tales from the courtroom. I liked how you uh, t- entitled that, Blair. Yeah, we, we love to have some experts on and really get into, you know, I think we all learn best with stories. So, you know, to really help our listeners understand, well, you know, what's an example of where a lawyer's, you know, taken a client on and all the way through to a court and got a successful result. And then also today, I'd love to talk about where you've been able to avoid court and settle something outside, um, you know, using some different mechanisms. So, Sanjeev, I hope we can talk through an example of each of those today. Sure. Well, I had a fun case that uh, ended or wound up earlier this year, and, and I think it does a good job of showing the value of having a lawyer involved in a case. The situation involved a client who had sold equipment to a retail business, and, and the relationship had been going on for, for years, and the retailer began to run up a, a significant uh, balance owing with, with, the cli- with my client. Ultimately, my client decided to cease selling to the retailer because despite all the promises, they could never get caught up. Well, interestingly enough, after all that happened, the retailer decided that they were going to pack up a container with a bunch of unsold goods, ship it back to my client, and demand a refund and credit for the stuff. Hmm. The problem 
was that pretty much everything in the container was either very old, never a part of my client's product line, oh, well. damaged, <laughs> or all of the above. And probably well outside of terms of sale. I'm sure there were re- you know return timelines there, right? Of course. Right. So naturally, no credit was offered, and lo and behold, the retailer launched a lawsuit against my client, claiming that they were owed money for the stuff they'd sent via the container. Mind you, there was never any agreement uh, about the return of the stuff, and in addition to defending the claim on uh, on the basis that there was nothing owed and no basis for the claim against it, my client also counterclaimed for their unpaid account. So fast forward uh, uh, from the start of the lawsuit to to the time we're in court. We get to court. And and, Steve, and how, take, how long was that from when the, the lawsuit started to when you were in court? So I think there can be a delay sometimes, right? I think it was about two years or so. Wow. They started, I think, in 2016, and, yeah. and, and we were uh, in court in 2018 in the spring here. Mm-hmm. And there was there had been a couple of adjournments of the of the trial for for various reasons. It fell on on certain uh, religious holidays, and, and and so they sought adjournments uh, to to accommodate those uh, the religious uh, practices, which was fine. And and so we get to court finally in the spring of this year, and, and I take the other side's main witness through their accounts, and the invoices, and the agreements, and he confirms that the retailer, his company owed money to my client, that there'd never been any agreement about the return of the stuff they'd sent back to the retainer. And after I got all of this helpful evidence out of the retailer's witness, the judge presiding over the case recommends that uh, maybe uh, the two sides want to talk outside uh, <laughs> about uh, dealing with the matter before proceeding with the rest of the trial. Mm-hmm. So, mind you, we had a pretty good idea that the retailer had limited means um, mm-hmm. to pay any judgment that we were going to get, even if we were 100% um, successful on the counterclaim. Um, and, and recovery would be difficult, and legal expenses of completing the trial would be significant. So uh, we negotiated an agreement. The uh, the judge made orders to give effect to the agreement, uh, with the claim being dismissed, and and we collecting a, a bit of money for the for the client on top of uh, for the uh, client's unpaid account. And now I think. The, the re, if the retailer had sought out legal advice, they would have avoided the costs associated with the whole dispute and saved themselves a whole lot of time, trouble, and grief. In the first place, if they had taken that action. Exactly. Got On the it. other hand, my, my client was able to be well-organized and reasonable throughout the process, and, 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 and he had my help in making sure that that happened, and, and we got the result that we always expected, but we, we did end up getting. And you know what I like about it, I just want to interrupt for a mm-hmm. sec, is um, the judge. Yeah. And just being, you know, full of common sense and suggested, you know, we don't need to go any further at this moment. Maybe you guys could discuss this outside. I just think that's terrific. I, I, I would love to know that that goes on more, more times than not in our system. Well, you, you, you do get feedback from judges, and, and, and when they do give you feedback, um, it, it, it's, it's wise to at least give it some close consideration. Sure, because, yeah, uh, give it a shot, right? You know what they're talking right? about more often than not. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Excellent. Well, that, that's just a great example, Sanjeev. And I wonder, um, in limited time that we have here, can we talk about the other situation, you know, uh, where you're able to help somebody settle outside of court so it didn't have to get to that point of being in front of a judge and the associated legal costs and things like that? Sure. Well, this is a matter a dispute that never ended up or saw the inside of a courtroom. We had a, a couple of people who were operating a business together. They purchased premises, business premises to operate the business out of. A few years goes by. 
um, the business partners decide to separate. But um, the, the premises remains co-owned. And, and then out of the blue, um, there's an offer to purchase the other side's interest. And, um, and then I'm, I'm, I'm consulted about the matter. And, and I was able to advise the, the client about the Partition of Property Act, which provides for essentially forcing the sale of property when ownership is 50-50. And knowing this, we were able to negotiate uh, a really a fair deal, which took into account market valuation, where the initial offer was not anywhere close to market, and, and resolve a whole lot of other issues that sort of remained unresolved from the time these two people had, had decided to separate their business. And so there was a cost to all of that, but there was no filings in court and all of that other stuff necessary. And I think the other side was well served because they had counsel, hmm. uh, a lawyer, who was able to provide that other side. That was going to be my advice. other question, too, is it, you know, even when you're negotiating informally, it probably makes sense that it's lawyers talking to lawyers in many cases. Right, and, and, and I find that negotiations with lawyers are often um, smoother because you're not personally invested in the dispute. You just want to get the best result you can for your client, um, and, and you're able to explain the situation to the client. And, and often, frankly, when you're paying for advice, you're more often to, uh, likely to listen to it. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> I, in closing, we've just got uh, just over two minutes left. Sanjeev, is there a place or is there a good resource for folks uh, who are just trying to figure out next steps before they come and see you uh, to figure out where you know what what their um, what their course of action might be? Well, frankly, it's a little dangerous for people to try and self-educate too much on on the uh, the nature of the legal process, and, and I say that not because I, I I don't think people are smart and capable, and there's a lot of resources there out on the web, but. Um, knowing what's important and what's not is, is often something that comes with time and experience and, and training. Um, a lot of lawyers will sit down with, with a person um, and give them a, you know, 15 minutes, half an hour of, of a consultation so that they can, um, the other person can, can get some ideas about where they're at and what would be required to move things forward, the cost of getting an opinion or, 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 or dealing, handling a problem. So I, I think that's really the best way of dealing with, uh, w- with issues like that. Excellent. Yeah, you can imagine if you've got medical issues and you start Googling, you figure out everything is going to have you in the grave pretty quickly. So. Absolutely. So. I think that's a, that's a perfect parallel to, to, the, uh, to the situation when people find themselves in legal problems. Well, if you want to get a hold of Sanjeev, he's very easy to get a hold of. He's at Magellan Law in Langley. MagellanLaw.ca is the website. And just a little bit about his bio. Uh, very, I think the firm in general, I could say, is pretty, it's, uh, it's area of expertise expertise is pretty broad, Sanjeev. Yes, we, we, we're we a pretty uh, diverse group here. We do a lot of uh, work for small and medium-sized businesses and, 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 and individuals who are all involved in all sorts of transactions and, and dealings in their life. And, and uh, sometimes people run into problems or disputes and uh, either on the, on the claimant side or the defendant side and and that's sometimes when they come and see me. Excellent. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Rachel Riddell is with us in studio. Thank you so much. Yeah, I know. It's great to be here. So happy you are. Uh, Rachel's an experienced estate manager and insolvency counselor with Sands & Associates. Uh, You specialize in providing debt management solutions for folks using educational supportive approach uh, you provide all sands and associate clients you work with with information they need to better understand options for debt resolution I love this little quote that we've got from you helping people who are facing financial difficulty achieve a financial fresh start is always my goal lovely yeah that's what <laughs> that's what you like to hear right oh yeah that, that's why we do what we do right <laughs> right um, so we're talking about uh, credit reports, credit rating, credit score, how to establish credit, all those, well, I don't, I don't want to say complicated, but they do mm. feel a bit complicated sometimes. I mean, I've learned yeah. a lot doing this show, uh, and it's still a bit of a mystery to me, the whole credit thing and why it's so important and why it isn't important. Yeah, and there's no clients that come to see us who don't ask that question. You know, usually it's at the first meeting, but it's definitely by the second or the third meeting. You know, well, what about my credit? What, how is something going to impact my credit? But sometimes there's a bigger education piece just about, you know, what is a credit rating? What is a credit report? And I think that's a great focus for today's segment. So thank you for joining us, Rachel. We wanted you to give us some background, you know, about how basically credit reports and credit ratings work in Canada. And starting at the basics, who are the credit bureaus in Canada and how do they get their information? Yeah, so this is a really common question that I get asked. Um, The two major credit bureaus in Canada are Equifax and TransUnion. Um, What they do is they collect, store, and share information about consumers' financial affairs. Um, They get this information from three major sources, um, us, the consumer, when we're filling out an application form for credit. So Um, so that's interesting there, too, because I've had people call me and say, you know, I just applied for a credit card, and suddenly I'm getting collection calls for old debts, and that's part of it, is when you apply for new credit, that actually update your credit report, right? Yeah. And some people don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's public records, so um, provide information related to such matters as bankruptcy, court judgments, and also every month our major credit grantors and collection agencies um, send the credit bureaus an electronic copy of whether we've paid our bills on time or not. Hmm. So that's like, you know, your bank credit card or anything like that, that's updating pretty well every month on, on your performance, right? Yeah. Okay. So there's kind of three sources of info there. Yeah. Those are the three major sources of how they get our information. Right. And you mentioned there are two bureaus, and you think you said Equifax and TransUnion. Is your credit report the same across both, and how do you actually check that? Yeah, so um, most of the major credit grantors use both services. However, some creditors may report to only one or none. So this means that the information on your credit report could be different with both bureaus. And that's why it's important to get into the habit of every year checking your credit report um, because you want to make sure for accuracy and that the information is correct in your information. See, and I just want to stop you there for a second. I was shocked when Blair first told me when we first started, when I first started working with you, that um, the information isn't always accurate. Yeah. Yeah. That shocked me. And, I'd and say it's all, always not accurate, that's really. That's crazy yeah. to me. You'd think that something's so important mm-hmm. for so many people that it would be accurate. 
Yeah. And everything's manually entered at the credit bureaus. So even more because it's people doing it, that's just common that there is errors. Sure. Like just, yeah, just that human factor. But it's such important information and Mm -hmm. can impact people in such a significant way. Yeah. And and you might not even know, right, Rachel? You might not know there's all these errors on your credit report of why you're getting declined. So the idea of getting your credit report, and you said you you can get it for free once a year. How do you actually do that? Yeah, so you can get it for free um, in person, by mail, over the phone, or fax. Um, And checking your own credit, it's a soft inquiry. So sometimes people are worried that if they check their credit, it's going to negatively impact their credit score. Um, But it won't impact your credit at all when you check your credit report. Now, do I have a password and all that kind of stuff with these companies if I'm I'm checking it? Or are they just taking, because I could phone and I could say I'm you, but they're going to run through a series of questions. Because I'm always concerned about telling anybody that I don't know any kind of information about me uh, for another purpose. Which is understandable. Um, But online, you can create an account on their website, or you can call and they'll ask you personal information, or you can fax in a request form for your credit report with two pieces of ID, and they'll mail you your credit report. So there is some security around it. Even mm-hmm. though the information might not be accurate, there's some security yeah. around it. Fair yeah, and, enough. And, and even for folks, they come in to see us. You know, Rachel, they sit down with you or I and they say, you know, I just don't know who I owe money to. Well, sometimes the first thing we'll do is, okay, well, let's help you pull a credit report. Um, and I know Credit Karma, just in the last year, they've given a good ability to access your credit online for free. Um, but also we help a lot of folks in our offices fill out a form, you know, we'll fax it off to the credit bureaus and then they'll bring the report in when it comes. So and, it's not too difficult to track down, really. Okay, mm-hmm. and is Credit Karma... Is that an app that you would have? Is that how that works? Uh, it's a website. A I, website. They may have an app as well, but we just access it through the website. And obviously, they're trying to loan you money, so say no to the offers, but you oh. can access your credit for free through them. Okay, excellent. Um, I also, in preparing uh, for you to be here, Rachel, was... Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if the word "surprised" was right, but I I was interested to know that the credit report may contain a whole bunch of financial information that I I wouldn't expect it to have, um, like non sufficient funds. If I got notices mm-hmm. from my bank or credit union or bad checks, uh, all kinds of things, Blair, and and that surprised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the actual amount of information on the credit report. I think Rachel just in in the notes you prepared for us, which the listeners. Can can't see. You really broke it down great into some financial information and factual information. Can you highlight kind of the main points of the, what the financial information is in your credit and then the factual information? Yeah. Um, so like you were saying, like non-sufficient funds. So the financial information, non-sufficient funds, um, any checkings or savings account that were closed due to money owing or fraud committed. Yeah, I didn't know about that. So if, yeah. the, ba- if the bank yanks your account because they think you committed fraud, that goes in your credit. Okay. Right? So I had a question because this just happened to me recently. I had used... Um, my line of credit for a small amount of money out of a line of credit, existing line of credit. And then I'd completely forgotten that mm-hmm. I'd taken that out. So I was accrue, you know, having to pay, I wasn't paying, they were just sort of uh, accruing the interest. Yep. And then I, I look, finally looked at my statement and said, what the heck? What is this? I need to phone somebody. And they said, oh, well, yeah, you, you, the your um, this account is delinquent oh. because it's been <laughs> 90 days that you haven't. And I have, you know, money in other accounts with this financial institution. Um, so I looked after it, needless to say, but I thought, oh, and, and then when I read this, I thought, okay, so is that going to show up on my credit report that I didn't pay on a line of credit for three months, even though I'm a pretty good customer? 
asking? Yeah, so with your credit rating, that's what um, your credit rating measures how dependable you are in repaying your debts. Right. So there is a nine-point scale of whether you've um, paid your debts on time or if there's been no payments. Well, I so wasn't paying this on time, so I was thought, oh, man. But if you also have like different forms of credit, that also is helping towards your credit rating and okay. credit score. So if you're delinquent on one payment for 90 days, usually an R1 rating is if you've paid all your bills on the due date or within 30 days. Okay. So it might impact it a bit, but if you're paying other bills on time, right. that also goes yeah. to... I, I was, Rachel. I was paying yeah. everything <laughs> on time. It's important that you know that. I was just so surprised when, like I said, when preparing for this, when I read that, I thought, oh man, I've wrecked my yeah. credit report. Yeah, but no, you haven't. Thank you. It, it would, thank you. It would maybe affect your rating a bit, but all your other payments that are paid on time. By a, a point or two report. or something, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want to go through the rest of the, the pieces that it may have, that may be contained on the report? Yeah. So just in regards to the financial information, um, um, any bankruptcy or court decisions, um, debt sent to collections, inquiries from lenders and others who've requested your credit report. In oh, the that's past interesting. Three years. Um, in the past three years, that's actually a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any remarks, including consumer statements, fraud alerts, um, identity verification alerts. Okay, and then the actual factual information—the stuff that's important—is so. Could we say that that's important for the credit report to have the more important stuff? Uh, all of it's fairly important, but yeah, okay. you want it all to be accurate. I think that's the end. At the end of the day, it's your basically your record of your financial life. So both the factual and the financial should be accurate. And yeah, Rachel, what kind of factual stuff? Um, so they report um, when you opened your account, how much you owe, um, if you've made your payments on time, um, if you miss payments, if your debt has been transferred to a collection agency, if you went over your credit limit, um, and also personal information that's available in public records, such as a bankruptcy. Okay, fair enough. So what is a credit rating, this thing that I so care about and I don't know why? <laughs> <laughs> so your credit rating is a measure of how dependable you are in repaying your debts. Um, so like I said earlier, every month the credit bureaus um, send, sorry, the your creditors or collection agencies send the credit bureaus an electronic copy of whether you've paid your bills on time or not. Um, and you'll be given a rating on a scale of one to nine. So an R1 is the best, meaning that you pay all your debts on time within 30 days. Right. Um, and an R9 is the lowest, um, as there was no repayment made. Okay, so that's the score part of it. Oh, no, that's the rating. And, and that's this is actually, the rating. This is really important because oh, so many people, no. they say there's a credit rating, there's a credit report, and then there's a credit score. Okay. So, Rachel, what's the credit score? Yeah, what's the score part? Yeah. So the score is a numeric figure that represents your credit risk. Um, the credit bureaus use a scale from 300 to 900. Okay. Um, 900, so being the highest, so the higher your score, the lower the risk for the lender. Um, so it's easier to get approved for a new loan, the higher your credit score is. Well, that makes sense. That's logical, isn't yeah. it? So how do I improve my credit score if it's kind of sucks right now? Yeah, so um, the most important factors are your repayment history. Um, so that makes up 35% uh, of your credit score. Okay. Um, other factors that influence your credit score are collections and bankruptcies recorded against you, uh, the amount of credit you owe, too much or too little can negatively impact your credit score. Hmm. So is that something like, Rachel, if you got a card with a low limit, but you're using it almost up to that limit every month, that's worse than having a card with a higher limit, but you use it at less than 50% of, of yeah. what the limit is. So yeah, exactly. keeping the balances relatively low is a good thing, right? Yeah. So yeah. the three most important factors are your payment history, whether you've declared bankruptcy, and the amount of outstanding credit balances that are reporting on there. And if I've never uh, had any kind of credit, how do I, what's the best way to either establish it or or fix it up or make it more 
um, appealing or attractive. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the right word is. Improve it. Yeah, thank you. Improve it. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, so whether you've gone through a bankruptcy or consumer proposal or or if you're at the point where you're just establishing your credit, um, using a credit card or a secured credit card is usually the easiest step to take to build some sort of credit history. So a secured credit card, it requires that you put a deposit um, of some money with a credit card issuer. Um, your credit limit is usually normally a set of percentage of the deposit that you put down. Um, and then making monthly payments on time on that credit card will help build uh, credit history. And that's the kind of credit card that you we often talk yeah. about when somebody's in a consumer proposal. Your first step to rebuild is typically your secured credit card. Right, yeah. and that's a certain amount of money on it and then using it and then paying that money back in a, in a, in, within the rules or the timely manner that they suggest. Exactly. Yeah, there is usually a fee for the card, mm-hmm. um, and you only need the card for a year before you can try to apply for an unsecured credit card. Okay, and obviously, if you do really well with it, then they're going to uh, look upon you favorably. Yeah, they'll see a year of good payments made. Excellent. Well, Rachel, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this is great. Rachel's an experienced estate manager and solvency counselor with Sands and Associates. And of course, uh, I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. And Sands and Associates is all about helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Bethany Can. She's a qualified insolvency counselor with over five years of experience working in the personal debt help industry. Bethany works with Sands & Associates, primarily in the Abbotsford and Langley offices, for the one-to-one financial counseling sessions. Now, we know a little bit about Bethany. Uh, We know that she feels it's pretty important to provide help without judgment. Boy, is that ever true. And says, through financial counseling, clients begin to feel empowered with knowledge of money management and, most importantly, hopeful about the future. Bethany's number one piece of advice for people seeking help with their debts is, in order to achieve your goals, let go, don't dwell on the past, Let us help you focus on your future and get you where you want to be. Having said that, I think that's awesome, Bethany. Uh, Looking forward, so important because, boy, having debt can be just so debilitating for folks. Mm -hmm. Um, And then thinking about it from from the place of, once you learn those important lessons, which I think this is where you you come in in this process uh, to help people make better decisions or better choices uh, when they come up again. So I, I think that's great advice. Now, um, so let's start uh, talking about the counseling sessions that Sands & Associates offer. Um, and are they are they mandatory for clients coming in the door? Yes. Um, in a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal process, it is required by the superintendent to attend um, the two counseling sessions. Now, and that must object- be, yeah, I was going to say that besides it being mandatory, I can't imagine doing going through this process without having some kind of counseling uh, to back it up. Yeah, I think it's really helpful for people. Um, the objective of the counseling sessions is to help with the overall financial rehabilitation Um, Hopefully, we uh, are helping people with the skills they need to ideally make a bankruptcy or a proposal, a one-time occurrence in their lives. And we want them, like you said before, to feel uh, hopeful about their future. 
Now, I bet um, that's that's not the case when they walk in your door. Right. No, there is quite a difference from the first counseling to the second counseling session, that's for sure. Can you give us a couple of words to describe what the first counseling, what are folks feel? And, and I'm asking you this just because I want folks who are listening to know that they're, you know, that if they're feeling really apprehensive um, about right. taking this step or feeling embarrassed, um, that they're not alone. Right. And that's a great word to describe it. Um, I, I do feel like a lot of people are, you know, ashamed or embarrassed um, in the first counseling session. Um, and I do start to notice, you know, 10 or 15 minutes into the counseling session that that does, you know, they start feeling a little bit better as we talk about it. A lot of the people that are here, it is life circumstances that have brought them um, to this place. It isn't, you know, a reflection of who they are or their work ethic. And when you talk to someone about that, um, I really feel like they feel a lot better and differently about it. Their per- perspective changed a little bit. Yeah, I think that that's such a key point, Bethany. I've had so many clients, you know, even, you know, years after who have come back and said, you know, it's that when they got the message from us that, hey, this doesn't define you. You know, this is a temporary right. state. You're in debt now. It doesn't mean you're a person who will always be in debt or deserves to always be in debt. But as soon as you can break from, you know, just that self-definition of, oh, my God, I'm a bad person that made some mistakes and I'll never move forward, um, you know, making that right. mental change is really important. And I think the counseling helps with that. Definitely. So what about the second counseling session? Does this happen um, farther into the process or whereabouts does that, does it normally happen? Yeah, it usually happens a month or two after the first counseling session. Okay. Um, Huge difference. Um, I see a lot of smiles come and walk into my office. They're very excited um, to share with me, you know, the updates. They hold their head a lot higher. Um, From what I hear from them, I definitely feel like they're managing their money instead of the money managing them. Mm. Um, A lot of them come in and they want to, you know, show me how how much savings they have in the bank now. They're a lot happier. They're stress-free. And a lot of people say, I'm finally sleeping. (laughs) So big difference. Big difference. What are the actual things that you uh, or issues that you cover in your second session? Right. Great question. So um, in the second counseling session, if um, the person has gone bankrupt, then we do a file review um, just to make sure all of their duties are up to date. Um, if they're not, we do. I go over it just so we can get the clients caught up. And could you define this process? Could you define what do what duties the client has? Right. So in the bankruptcy process, um, they have income and expense statements, um, and those are monthly reports. And that shows the income and their outgoings as well. And I really think a lot of people, you know, the first couple of months, it's a bit tough to get into the habit of tracking where their money goes. But once they do, they're like, I'm never going to stop because now it's an eye-opening, eye-opening experience seeing how much life has actually been costing me. Mm. So <clears throat> I think they found that really helpful. So that's a duty. Um, you know, there are fees, so they have to make sure that they're, catching up on all of those. So those are the kind of things that we go over. Um, what happens when somebody is uh, discharged from their bankruptcy uh, or proposal? Because I'm sure that they're wanting to know that as well. Right. So once um, they are discharged from this process, they do um, get you know notified that of a certificate. 
um, then we do suggest, and this is what we go over in the second counseling, that you check your Equifax and TransUnion reports because we want to make sure they are correct. Um, we also go over in the second counseling a lot of questions, need versus want. You can usually justify making a lot of purchases, but really dialing in what is a need and a want. Yeah, it's one thing we're, we're great at, at humans is finding the justification for what we actually yeah. want to do. So I know right. that need versus want, it sounds so simple, but my God, that's the difference a lot of the time between people um, you know, making the wrong decision or not is really understanding what's a need and what's a want. Can you guys give, give us some criteria of how, you, of how you help somebody figure out what a need is and what a want is? Either one of you. Yeah, Bethany, do you have any, any insight? You know, it completely depends on the person. A lot of um, the needs are, I usually say, go with the medical things first. Some people, you know, need glasses and they haven't been able to get glasses. Right. Um, Lots of medical things, I definitely say that's a need. Um, Once, like Blair says, people justify them. Um, You know, us included, we have to kind of keep tabs on that as well. But once, you know a newer car, um, a handbag, you know, mm-hmm. different things. Blair, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you hit it right on there, Bethany. So if I'm thinking about, you know, well, what do you really need in life? You need a roof over your head. You need to, you know, be able to mm-hmm. feed yourself, take care of your family. So all those are basic needs. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of wants in there. You know, you might want to grab the coffee on the way to work every morning, but you need that? No. And you could definitely save money making it at home. And there's nobody that comes to us because they bought a coffee every day, but it can be symptomatic of, you know, a, a bigger issue uh, of, you know, just really not having any sort of, you know, denial. Sometimes you have to be able to say, no, I don't really need this. I just want it. And you know what? I can't afford it right now. How about, uh, what are the, what are some other things? I know we, we've, we've made a note about um, ways to rebuild your credit and I'm sure for some folks, they can't even believe that they could start that process. How difficult? Yeah. Well, um, we do go over that in the first counseling session as well, and then we touch on it again in the second counseling session. So a lot of people are very surprised at the rebuilding process, and they can rebuild when they're in this process as well, which I think people are very happy and hopeful about that. Um, so, you know, there's Two things that we go over in the second counseling is RRSP loans is a way to rebuild your credit. Right. Um, so that's an installment loan. So that shows your future creditors that you can utilize different kinds of credit. Um, and then another one is the secured credit cards. Um, and that's another you know helpful one as well. Absolutely. I just think it's so great that you've been able to take some time with us today, Bethany, because I've, I think the counseling uh, set part of this process is so important for folks. I get all the data and I get all the putting in the information together, but, but having that little bit of support on the, uh, in the process is so important. And listen, if any of this information is resonating with you and, and you feel like you yourself or you know somebody uh, needs a hand to get out of debt, uh, this is the way to do it. First of all, if you want to go to Sands & Associates' website, it's sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.